Welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I am Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis, and I am lucky to be joined, as always, by Sarah Bay Jung of Bowdoin College. Sarah, how are you uh, dealing with week two or three of the semester out there? So far, so good, Panel. You look good. You look like you're hanging in there. Well, I'm uh, trying. <laughs> <laughs> it's all an illusion. Um, and we are joined also equally luckily by Harvey Young of Northwestern University. Harvey, how are you doing? Are you draining the last delicious drops out of your summer break? I have five more days. Oh, that's a lot. That's yes. an eternity. <laughs> well, thank you for being willing to come to the office to record um, on what is actually your vacation. So today we have three exciting segments to discuss. We're going to talk about dramaturgical dispatches from the 2016 presidential election. We'll talk about Michelle Volansky's article in the new American Theater Magazine about the stagecraft of presidential elections and campaigning. We will talk also about the exciting new September issue of Theater Survey, uh, which is special in part because it is um, the last of the editions that Harvey Young will uh, be editing after his four-year stint as editor of Theater Survey. Uh, We're going to talk in particular about the call for the future section. Those short essays are really interesting and really provocative. And then we will talk about our classes that we're teaching this term. Uh, This is, I guess, the podcast equivalent of the what did you do over your summer vacation question. It is the what are you teaching this semester question. Um, But we'll get into what the classes that we're all teaching might say about the uh, uh, current state of the field. Of course, we will wrap up with our drafts. And before we get to all of that, we have some news items that we want to round up for you. There is another theater and performance studies related podcast that has debuted um, Michael Luger, who operates the at theater history Twitter feed has now launched the theater history podcast. So in this podcast, he has guest scholars and each recording highlights a specific object in theater history. It's definitely worth a listen. And you can find that um, at HowlRound. In fact, I believe it's a HowlRound um, sponsored production. So welcome, Michael, to the podcast theater huddle. We hear that there is going to be a large contingent, maybe 12 to 15 people, of scholars of Asian American theater performance in attendance at the National Asian American Theater Conference and Festival in Ashland, Oregon in early October. Uh, This conference is being hosted by the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and so we hear that um, there's going to be a, a, a nice sort of nucleus of folks working on those topics, and we're excited to hear what comes out of it. We may have missed this or mentioned it briefly in in prior podcasts, but there's a new journal in the field, Global Performance Studies. Um, A call for papers went out over the summer, and I believe that had a September deadline. But according to the press release or the call for papers online, this is a peer-reviewed online published journal that specifically looks at performance with a global scope. So this is an exciting new outlet for scholarship that we should be aware of. And just to say a little bit more about about Global Performance Studies, or GPS, this is an initiative coming out of the board of the directors of Performance Studies International. So it was a goal of Micah Blakers for a number of years and is now being headed up by Kevin Brown. So 
it's the product of uh, several months of, uh, of sort of planning and work, but a really exciting initiative that I think will be a great outlet for scholars at all levels. It looks great, right? I think it, it mentions that it the genesis of this was discussed at the Fluid States PSI, and now it is up and running. And so we'll be we'll be looking for the first um, editions of that. Thank you, Sarah. Next, uh, we wanted to note that Bruce McConaughey has retired. He was at Pitt and uh, was professor of theater arts there for many years. Now he is emeritus. Bruce is a major figure in the field. Um, I still think of melodramatic formations, his book about um, Jacksonian politics and early 19th century American theater as being an exemplary case of new historicism practiced in theater history. And in more recent years, he contributed very actively to the growing literature on neuroscience and theater. This is one of these things where you hear later that someone has retired, and it seems like it should be news, but then again, people, when they retire in academia, they keep writing, they keep editing, uh, sometimes they keep advising graduate students. But I just wanted to make note of, of that. And he was a past president of ASTR. Past president of, of ASTR and, and... And recipient of its Lifetime Achievement Award. That's right. So it's a, it's a, it's a major event. Tavia Nyong'o is now officially at Yale University. This is a, a move that I think many of us knew about because it had been in process for many months, but um, he is now professor of American Studies and Theater Studies at Yale after leaving NYU. Finally, it is not often that we get to break news on the podcast, but I'm excited to be able to announce that there will be a Cats of Aster 2017 <laughs> calendar. Uh, Christine Mock has told me that I can go ahead and announce it on the podcast, thus committing her to see it through. Um, I'm sure Christine would love to have your photographs of your theater and performance scholar cats, which she can find a way to combine with photos of theater and performance history. Christine, bring us Cats of Esther. Moving on to our first segment, Michelle Volansky's recent article in American Theater, All the World's a Campaign, revisits the enduring uh, relationship between what we understand broadly as the um, art and practice of stagecraft and the messy, grim art of getting candidates elected in American politics. Um, This is not the first time that we've mentioned this topic on the podcast. Way back in 001, Sarah, um, in her draft mentioned a an ominous quote from Walter Benjamin talking about the way that in the age of recorded and mechanically reproducible media, there is a kind of selection of both actors and of leaders who can play to that media. Certainly, this presidential election has been exemplary in a number of ways. We have the first female nominee for a major party candidate for the presidency. We have a uniquely unqualified and abusive rhetorical agent as the nominee for the other party. But does this race change the way that we think about theatricality and performance in American political culture? Sarah, what do you think? Well, I was really struck by two things in the in in the article. One is the parallels as you mentioned to 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 the Benjamin, but also it's much of the article seems to rehearse the arguments of the live versus mediated theater debate. And where she comes down at the end of the article is that you really, in order to know what's going on, you have to be in the room, you have to experience the live campaign event and 
for those of you who haven't read the article, Volansky travels to a, a variety of, of live campaign events and comments on the kind of staging and the, you know, theater, theatrical production of, of those events. Interestingly, they're all at different points in the campaign. So she looks at Kasich on the rise and Rubio days before he suspended his campaigns. Some of the, the parallels aren't quite exact between the candidates. But one point that I would be curious to get both of your perspectives on is she, she talks about how Donald Trump's campaign is, in her eyes, less successful. And mm-hmm. she compares it to what she sees as being more successful in social media and television. But then she says, quote, in the eyes of this dramaturg, he was less successful on the trail because of his choice of venues. And she describes the venues as as being untheatrical in terms of they obscure the audience member from seeing the actor well, i.e. the people attending from seeing Trump. But it seems to me that that Volansky misses the major major point and, and what makes Trump's campaign most effective, regardless of how you feel about his politics, which is that he's actually not there to facilitate an audience interaction with him. He trusts that his celebrity status is already there as a kind of icon, or to go back to Benjamin, right, is already, has already established its aura. What you're actually experiencing in the Trump rally is not Trump, but the other people who are at the Trump rally. And that right. like social media, what you experience is not him, but yourself in that space. And in this way, I think the reading of theater as a lens to look at the effectiveness of the Trump campaign is far less apt, even in the live experience. It's really, he's figured out how to embody social media without social media. Okay. So are you arguing that this is, you know, that that he's a sort of candidate of the digital age, um, perhaps in a way that's analogous to the way that Ronald Reagan was a, you know, candidate of the electronic age or you know i guess i guess the question i would put back to you sarah and also you harvey is does trump demonstrate that anything has fundamentally changed in the way that theater is applicable for designing campaign events in other words it's one thing sarah to say that you know to use the sort of dramaturgical lens and say actually these rallies are not well staged and you can't see anything or is it that you know, the theater is not as important in creating those events in the first place. I think those are two two sides of the same equation, which is that, no, theater is not as important in the way, in terms of what we experience at a live event. And two, that what Donald Trump stages in the live is, in fact, more analogous to a po- the political venue of, venue of social media than it is to the political venue of, say, um, Aristophanes, right, where okay. you go and you watch things play out in real time. I would say that Hillary Clinton and many of the other more formal traditional candidates seem to be putting on more, quote unquote, theatrical and well-staged live events. But Trump isn't trying to create a live event. He's trying to create a live experience of your social media event mm-hmm. and or a live event of your social media experience. I mean, which is where you don't actually look at the candidate, you look at yourself looking at the candidate. Right, right. So what you see of the candidate, and this frankly goes right to where Phil Auslander starts in liveness, which is the rock concert that gives you not the rock concert performer, but the rock concert performer on the Jumbotron. Yes. And I, and I agree. I think that part of the appeal uh, of the Trump rally 
is is the scale, right? Um, so it is a user-focused, audience-intensive event, right? Where sure you can't see him because a jumbotron is not you know being employed, you know, but the fact that you're there among a mass of people, um, you know, your focus centers on them as part of this larger sense of community, right? As opposed to it being a star-driven, celebrity-driven moment where you're there to see the person. It's like, in a way, it's like the person facilitates the audience engagement, but your charge as an attendee is going to be based uh, mostly upon the people who are around you. Right. So then what he's done is created these events that are essentially working on us as social media uh, entities. Well, in the fall, I taught a class called Theater as Social Media, uh, mm-hmm. in, and my students and I actually looked very closely at all of the candidates uh, and this question of to what extent are they is what they're doing in the campaign theatrical and to what extent is it uh, aligned with social media and how are these two things you know similar or not similar and you know Trump has way more I don't know what the current count is but he has millions more Twitter followers than all of the other candidates certainly in the re- Republican primary and I think mm-hmm. Possibly, I haven't looked at. I, I checked this morning, and he has, I think, eleven point five twi- uh, million Twitter followers compared with uh, Hillary. How many does Hillary? Clinton that's have? a good question. I don't know. I, I haven't looked at that, but I think you know. So clearly, somebody's on Twitter, at least nominally. But I think what Trump figured out very early, much earlier than everybody else, is that Twitter is only one mechanism. But if you can use. Twitter in certain ways you can communicate with a a population but then as it gets picked up and cited in the New York Times I mean the New York Times and other online you know news outlets figured out uh, how to quote Twitter and they created its own visual Mm -hmm. format for how a tweet appears in line with a news article particularly in online so um, the way that gets picked up through all kinds of websites quote-unquote mainstream liberal media to alt-right conservative blogs and back and forth. I think we underestimate that density and and uh, and intensity of, of communication uh, at our peril. I think it's it's far more significant than any of us in any one particular political position understand because of course we're only seeing because of various algorithms and search sites and our Facebook friends, et cetera, we're we're really only seeing what we what we are also what we are expressing. Right. And I think it's easy to miss the discourse that's happening with political views that we don't necessarily ascribe to. Yes, you know, and it's always fascinating when you have exposure to uh, a wider social network uh, and you can see competing perspectives. You know, to go back to uh, Trump and Twitter, I do think that his tweets are almost perfectly aligned with uh, news sound bites, right? You know, and I think that's something that we've learned recently is how, you know, a tweet as soundbite uh, is effective and short and brief and contains uh, whatever you want to read into it, mm-hmm. right? And then these performances at the rally becomes places to stage the soundbite, to stage the tweet. Right. And so he can test out messaging as he goes on Twitter, see how it does, and, and cycle those into the talks. Or the other way around, right? You know, yes, he can exactly. uh, just sort of assert and repeat mm. uh, the tweet that he knew attracted widespread attention. Yeah. I have one more question for you guys, which is that let's let's assume for the sake of argument that we agree with Michelle Volansky and that these are, you know, a- as bits of um, political stagecraft, these rallies are not great, you know, and I think that they're, I think that that's actually true. I mean, Trump yeah. with the goofy hat 
and his appearance and his sort of, you know, uh, awkward way with teleprompters um, that, you know, he's got nothing of the um, actor's discipline that Ronald Reagan had. And I'm thinking of Ronald Reagan a lot because I was revisiting um, Timothy Raphael's fantastic book about Reagan, the, the president electric. So the question that I have is this. If Trump were, in addition to having his sort of, you know, particular communication talents, if he were also trained and disciplined as a performer in the way that Reagan was, would he be doing even better? In other words, is he rejecting um, the the polish and the discipline of the actor uh, to his own benefit? Well, first of all, I mean, two things. One, it's really hard to know for me, or at least I find, how well he's doing or not doing. Um, because I, the polls seem to say all kinds of contradictory things, and I'm not sophisticated enough at reading them to, to know what to trust or what not to trust. I, I do think that if he were more polished, but with the same basic content, uh, it's hard to imagine that he would be getting as much attention from popular news sources. Because I would say that just kind of my rough estimation, I I haven't looked at this carefully, I could be wrong, but I would say that at least a a third of all news reports about Trump are focused primarily on the style of his performance as candidate as opposed to the substance of what he's actually saying. So stories about gaffes, stories about uh, events, stories about things that are unusual. And so I wonder if he were more polished, if that segment goes away. Um, at the same time, it seems as if he's making a lot of, uh, uh, you know, an, uh, uh, an improv, you know, improv mistakes where he just takes jokes too far. He plays to particular audiences, but isn't aware that they might be replayed in other contexts. Um, and and that seems to be, you know, uh, a bit of a, a, a liability for him that people are constantly, or at least, again, the news reports that I get, that people right. are constantly trying to sort of uh, train him out of. So I, I think it's I think that's a hard call. Well, so I have a, I have a question for you two, uh, because in many ways we're repeating uh, one of the challenges and problems that the news media uh, have encountered. Uh, which is to spend so much time thinking about Donald Trump and his performance <laughs> approach. Uh, whereas in this article, Volansky uh, looks to Hillary Clinton and refers to her as a seasoned performer, right? Uh, and uh, a person whose orchestration of these political events uh, uh, is much better, right, than Trump. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on Clinton as a Yeah, performer? you're completely right. We just we just proved why Donald Trump works is that we, we spent, you know, 12 minutes talking about him when Michelle Walensky's article is about, you know, 10 different politicians. Um, I actually saw Hillary Clinton in St. Louis when she came through and gave a stump speech um, prior to the end of the nominating contest with uh, Bernie Sanders. And it was, you know, the, the things that you read are pretty much true. It, it seemed as though she was... Um, there and and managed in a way that was cognizant of the film ability of the event um the stage ability of the event i don't i didn't stay for the entire event but i didn't see her you know uh, talking to people who were there directly communicating with people in front of her um she's not without skill i mean she gave a rousing speech and 
um, uh, the event felt exciting and, um, uh, you know, but I think it's, she was well within a sort of, um, territory of sort of safe plays and, and not too risky, um, uh, utterances, which is like, you know, part of her reputation. I have never seen Hillary Clinton speak, uh, live, at least not, not in this campaign cycle. And I, maybe I, I don't think I've ever seen her live. Um, I think as, you know, as someone who performs for the media, I think she is kind of hit or miss and it really depends on the venue. Um, I think she often has a hard time negotiating the distance, you know, the far look to the live audience with the near look of playing to the camera. Um, you know, I, I, I just don't think she has because you really have to do those two things simultaneously. Uh, and I'm not sure that, at least just looking at her video documentation. Um, that said, I, I think that one of the real challenges that I don't think can be echoed enough, though it's har- hardly original to me, is this idea that, you know, as soon as she's a woman on screen, that comes with a whole set of signifiers and histories and meanings that no that that is not true for men on screen mm-hmm. and i think right. I you know we just you know again i i'm inclined to i mean i i disagree with valansky i think i think being in the room is a lot less important uh in political events uh, i think when you're in the room you're more or less an extra on set for mm-hmm. the real audience and i think whether you're there or not and what you see or don't see is is in the long run, much more, much less significant than than the much wider viewership at home that will then not only play in live broadcast but in repeated broadcast. And sure. I think in that environment, it's almost impossible to know how to look at Hillary Clinton independently of the history of of women on screen. Why don't we leave that topic here and we can move on to something uh, a bit more, I don't know, uplifting, celebratory in nature, though uh, also not without its provocative elements. The September edition of Theater Survey is out. Um, it is It caps off uh, our own Harvey Young's um, four-year uh, stent as editor. Um, there are a lot of special things in this um, edition. I found myself, you know, reading the call for the future section, but I was actually up very late last night because I couldn't resist reading the article by Tracy Davis and Christopher Balm on their cultural history of theater project. And I wanted to read Patrick McKelvey's article about Ron White. Um, But uh, it's an important issue. And we're going to talk about the call for the future section. Harvey, do you want to tell us a bit just about the um, origin of this uh, collection of short essays? And also, I would really like to know um, what you found most surprising about what you got back from these authors. Yeah, well, absolutely. Uh, so this year is the 60th anniversary of, of ASTR. And to recognize that anniversary, I wanted to do something special for the journal. 10 years ago, what the journal did was it basically reported on the history of, of the American Society for Theater Research, right? So it was uh, everything from here have been, uh, here are, um, uh, overviews of past conferences to reports on previous presidents to other initiatives and all that sort of thing. And I felt like it's a very well written um, 
article or essay you know that summarizes the history of the of the association so rather than offering a here's where we are 10 years later you know i thought let's actually look more into the future so i invited a number of people to write um an essay in which they not only address in some ways say the field but areas that they would like other scholars to study explore think through so basically you know if they could give us a prompt for the future what is the prompt that they would give us, right? Uh, and what? And, and there were no limits. No limits were placed um, on what they could say. I didn't edit anything out in terms of what they submitted initially. Uh, and it's a it's a range of things, right? Everything from uh, the role uh, or perhaps the lack of presence of history and historical scholarship uh, today to a call to. Uh, look beyond the borders of the U.S. Uh, to accounting to accounting for mental health mm-hmm. um, of graduate students uh, in our field. And so it was just the diversity of topics is what I found quite interesting. Yeah, um, it was interesting to you know you put Lawrence Senelik's essay right in the beginning, um, and that sort of cast a tone <laughs> set a tone for me uh, for what I read later. Yes. I do love um, that essay. I will say, yeah, I do too. <laughs> I'm, I'm really glad he wrote those things, and I found myself agreeing with um, some of the points he made, but vexed internally by <laughs> the question of to what extent I really agreed with his assessment of the field. And to you know, people should run out and read the essay. But in a nutshell, Lawrence Senelik. Um, you know, compares the state of theater studies today to um, Odysseus uh, attempting to return home to Penelope um, implicitly. And so it's a, you know, admittedly kind of satirical um, comparison of all of the perils that theater studies has encountered over the years, among which Senelik includes uh, high theory and performance studies, actually, um, and flirtations with um, other disciplines and ways of working, including neuroscience and anthropology and cultural studies. Um, And, you know, he rather provocatively, I think, says that the state that the field is in now is between the scylla of global theater on the one hand and the charybdis of identity politics and so one of the inferences in the essay is that theater studies is essentially none of these things right um and he you know goes on to say that he feels as though the field is not terribly well defined in terms of its discipline um and until it is defined and we sort of know what we are as theater scholars we're going to be lured by this and that you know um seductive um, so I don't know. I have a lot that I think about this essay. And again, <laughs> not to make Lawrence Senelik the Donald Trump of this segment. There were a lot. Of, <laughs> there were a lot of really other. There were a lot of other really interesting essays. Um, I you know I don't want to go through and, and summarize all ten of them. But um, Scott Magelson's um, about the mental health of graduate students I thought was was one that stuck with me. Um, there were some really eloquent calls to renew commitments to um, inclusion and diversity and to um, intensify the field's commitment to activism and social justice, I think, in precisely ways that Lawrence Sinelik would object to. Um, I don't know, uh, Sarah, what what did you find in this collection of essays that really stuck out to you? Well, I also found uh, Sinelik's essay com- compelling, uh, as as I did others. I will, I was compelled by one claim in 
Senelik's that seems to me to echo Herrera's, which is Senelik writes, I would also urge more interest in visual studies. And the idea of having a, a framework for understanding uh, visual documentation, illustrations, images that are produced right as uh, mm-hmm. ephemera of theatrical events, which is very similar to the way uh, to something that Herrera mentions as the 20th century industries that disciplined the formation of theater, film, media, and media studies accede to shifting 21st century models of production, distribution, and presentation. Performance historians might seek the opportunity to develop our own holistic or multi-platform or convergent scholarly methods. And it seems to me that these two things, although seeming in one way to say something very different, also speak to the ways in which even if we want to be very specific about what theater studies is and very disciplined in how we approach it, that we have to recognize that theater studies as a discipline is always made up of lots of other things and that there are other kinds of frameworks that we Mm -hmm. need to know and other histories that we need to know in order to engage theater history. And for that reason, I was puzzled. So I will will turn a question to the editor uh, of this particular section as to why since we are moving into the 21st century, and this is ostensibly a call to the future. In your opinion, Harvey, why is there still such a dearth of explicit conversations about digital methods, digital methodologies, and media artifacts, which are arguably the future of theater history? That is a good question. I I think that in some ways, what happens is that when a person is asked to imagine the future of the discipline of theater studies, uh, there's almost a conservative leaning, right? What what I mean by that is there uh, becomes the sense of what is theater studies, what is that enterprise, right? Uh, And then that requires a definition of what theater is and perhaps what theater may not be. Um, And that sort of roots theater um, in, in, in a manner that a person may not anticipate. So I think that's what's going on. You know, so I do think it sort of suggests there is a continued um, need to interrogate and learn more about a sort of new media approaches to performance, right, digital humanities as well. And I think that all universities, not all universities, but many universities are still sort of wrestling with that in terms of trying to figure out, you know, how to embrace um, multimedia forms, newer technology, um, into existing humanistic disciplines. It's interesting to compare this this selection with uh, the 2004 issue. I don't remember what month it is, mm-hmm. uh, the, which was about sort of like the future of theater. I think it was a different kind of forum, kind of future of theater history, right. or you know the state of, state of theater history. And I remember reading through that section and being struck that only one of those people, and I think it included Senelik as well as Tracy Davis and Marvin Carlson, a number of other people, uh, really significant, um, uh, was that Annette Fern was the only person to talk about uh, changing artifacts and to mention digital records uh, because she's a librarian right. uh, and an archivist. And I mean, this is, you know, this is 12 years ago that that's coming out. And I'm just, I'm really struck and, and uh, I'll go on the record as saying perplexed and perhaps um, discomforted that, that we're still, I, you know, that we're still not, not that this, that the, the discussion of where, like, where in 20 years, everybody is going to end up, right? You're just, you're going to be there is 
uh, is is not being discussed. Are you saying that in 10 or 20 years, we're all going to end up, you know, forced to or choosing to engage in more uh, digital ways of working? And that and so that that's a prediction and that's something that we need to in in 20 years. The vast majority of documents that any theater historian works with are going to come in digital forms. Oh, I agree. And you are Mm -hmm. almost certainly going to need to know how to use different kinds of tools, technologies, and equipment in order to access those digital forms. Right. And I mean, I think 20 years is a pretty conservative estimate. I think it could happen a lot lot sooner than that. Um, And that's not just, you know, that's not just like primary scholarship. I also think you're going to start seeing a lot of secondary scholarship that is going to need to respond to this. And I personally, I think it's great. And I don't think it has to displace other forms of scholarship uh, or other kinds of, you know, artifacts. But I think this kind of, you know, willful uh, ignorance or a look to the future in which that is not present seems crazy to me. Well, I mean, Harvey, I'm not sure how these names came to be the ones that, that provided essays and I could imagine you know I could imagine an approach where you would say okay let's be sure to find someone who's going to talk about digital media digital performance let's be sure to we find someone to talk about neuroscience or other you know uh, ways of working or sort of sub fields but what I think comes through in these essays is that there is um, you know that the things that people tend to be thinking about um have a lot of, I don't know, what would the word be? Um, that there's sort of an, an activist posture to right. the way that a lot of people are thinking about what we do. And that comes through in, um, you know, Ana Elena Puga's essay, who, you know, she argues that uh, theater and performance scholars should analyze social movements in order to understand better how performance can foster social change. Um, there's Suk Young Kim's essay about recycling. I mean, really, it's about, you know, ways of making theater and and theater scholarship less wasteful, which also has a kind of, you know, activist component to it. And you have Lawrence Senelik as the sort of sole, you know, conservative voice. Um, So I think you actually, it's interesting to read Senelik and then read the other essays, including Brian's, Brian Herrera's, but you get a sense of a real clash of views about what we need to do. And Lawrence Senelik is the only one who seems to be raising the issue of the field needs to define itself right. to be able to understand what it is and what it isn't. Yeah. I mean, I, I, like one of my goals was to have, was to have a generational range among the authors. Mm-hmm. And then I, my hope uh, was to also have, um, in addition to the generational range, a, a, a different, a, a range in terms of um, a sort of tenured, Untenured. Um, uh, I was hopeful to have sort of graduate students involved as well, um, which I don't think that one happened, uh, because what I realized was that there's some risk taking that takes place here, right? Where you know to boldly announce, you know, before the field, like here's what I think needs to happen. Uh, that becomes its own assertion of values, right? Uh, and that you know to have a mm-hmm. person who uh, is truly emerging out of graduate programs to be put in that position um, is risky for them. So I, I realized that in actually talking to a number of people about the possibility of writing for this. Um, you know, so that was, that was interesting. You know, in terms of 
the directions I gave, uh, it was truly, what do you want someone else to do, right? And that was an effort to um, lessen navel-gazing, right? So it wasn't a case where a person talks about their own sort of pet interest and project. It's like, you know, what, as I look at the field, what do I want? And in doing so, I felt that Mm -hmm. that would reveal, um, you know, some of the gaps, you know, in terms of, you know, how the field, it looks toward its future, uh, but also uh, gives us some interesting Mm -hmm. things to consider and debate, right? And certainly theater has always wrestled with the issue of disciplines. Um, I think that in terms of uh, the value of a certain traditional approach, like, you know, documentations being on paper, right? Like, you know, like does an e-journal count, you know, for tenure? I think like those types of questions are things that we're going to grapple with more to the future. I think there's a way in which we value, um, you know, the live body being present in places like we talked about with the last segment, you know, the Volansky article. And, you know, so is it still research um, if, you know, if you're looking at uh, sort of scan digital artifacts, you know, as opposed to flying halfway across the world to open a box and look inside it, right? And those are things that the field needs to work through because of course I think Sarah's totally right. Where we're heading is we're heading toward, um, we have to head toward an embrace of, of the digital and digital humanities uh, and digital scholarship. But I think that we're at this moment of transition and some of the explicit writings uh, in this series, but also some of the absences reveal that. Yeah. I was very, you know, I, I think Lawrence Sinelik's essay kept me up at night, actually, because I think he spoke, he wrote some things that I have, you know, quietly um, agreed with myself and worried about myself, which would be, you know, um, is is theater and performance studies a discipline that has, you know, proprietary questions, proprietary objects that there's a consensus uh, about, you know, that would help us answer the question, what's the difference between theater and performance studies and American studies, for example. Mm. And, you know, Lawrence Sinelik points out the relative atrophy of the historical part of the field. And that's the, you know, the part that trains historians, the part that works in other languages. Um, you know, he says that scholarly rigor is low. And I think that might be just be something that the, the older you get, you're more inclined to think is true. But I also think that, that, uh, it's a it's a pressing question whether or not there are certain ways of working that belong to our field. And I don't mean that, you know, we should only have theater historians or we should only have, you know, phenomenologists or, you know, critics of live performance. But I think, you know, in a way we might be better positioned if we end up like anthropology, where we have kind of, you know, a handful of rigorously developed and distinct ways of working and we are trained well in those methods rather than there being a kind of you know uh casual attitude towards the question of you know where history fits in where ethnography fits in where you know uh, uh criticism of pop culture fits in one other thing I just want to tag to that comment is that I'm not sure that these issues are actually endogenous right. to theater and performance studies. You could argue that humanities-wide and even social sciences-wide, there's less disciplinarity. Um, and that if you take a dissertation from you know, an anthropologist, uh, an American studies 
you know, theater and performance studies and you wipe away the names, like there are times when it might not be easy to tell what discipline you're reading from. And that, uh, I don't know, that has advantages and disadvantages. Finally, we wanted to uh, ring in the beginning of the semester or the quarter, depending on where you are, um, by talking about classes, what we're teaching, etc. Um, obviously, teaching is a big part of our work as, as scholars, and I think the classes we're teaching can reveal lots of things about the obligations that we feel personally as scholars and the the work that our department or that our college is trying to get done. Um, So I thought we could make some choices. Sarah, how many classes are you teaching this term? I am teaching two classes this semester. Okay. Why don't you let Harvey choose one of those classes for you to talk about? Okay. I am am teaching a first-year seminar, Performance and Theory in James Bond, (laughs) <laughs> and I am teaching playwriting. Oh, my goodness. Um, I want to hear about the Bond class, but my gut feeling is that the playwriting one actually might be more immediately relevant to listeners. Okay. Well, I will. So this is. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's that's perfectly fine. People can, you know, catch up with me about Bond later. Um, Maybe episode 007. <laughs> well, funnily enough, yeah, there you go. Well, funnily enough, my, my class for the first year seminar is uh, Theater 1007, because we have four number courses here. So the playwriting class is, is a little interesting because I, of course, am not really a playwright. So the, the way that I teach this is, is mostly dramaturgical. And through the, well, the way what I tell the students is that we study plays like uh, sort of like car mechanics or how to knit a sweater, which is understanding the, the mechanism that other people have used in order to construct these things called plays and then reverse engineering some of their techniques so that we can figure out what we want to steal and how to achieve certain effects as a way of building a kind of broad awareness of what the literature is doing and then thinking about how to turn that around and create it for ourselves. It's a, it's a range of students, many of whom are actors, directors, or just liberal studies students who uh, have a passing interest in theater, but, but no more. Uh, so it's a, it's a kind of interesting range. But I will tell you that uh, the first week we did work on uh, the cat in the hat as dramatic structure, uh, which is a great conversation. And then I had students write uh, lost scenes from the cat in the hat. So, you know, what got discovered in Dr. Seuss's drawers, right, that were cut from the original, then they had to write in the rhythm and in the, in the pattern. And, and I have to say, like, some of these were absolutely fabulous. Uh, I really, which is not, a, not something we're actually supposed to say in playwriting, right? We're supposed to, like, do different kinds of, but I'll just say right now, I thought they were really, really great. And my favorite uh, was, was um, one where a student, I mean, I had many favorites, actually, but this one where a student basically writes a coda on Sally's revenge in which the narrator goes on, if you know the story, um, at the end of the book, they're asked, you know, should we tell our mother what happened? And he goes on and on and on to the mother, telling her everything that happens, but she doesn't believe him. And he goes on so much that she has him committed, right, to a cell padded in white. And so he turns to dear Sally, who says nothing, right? So Sally in the book is silent, and here in this coda is also silent, right? You know, to help me in my dire plight. And Sally leaned in, and in a voice oh so mild, she whispered to me, I'm an only child. Mm. 
which I think is just kind of a great ending. <laughs> that's great. That's so yeah, great. I'm having a good time with that class. Uh, Sarah, why don't I tell you the two classes I'm teaching and you can choose one for me to talk about. I'm teaching uh, introduc- Introduction to Graduate Studies for our first year MA students. And I'm also teaching a class called Contemporary Comedy. Well, I guess, you know, as a former DGS, I'd be very interested to hear what you're what you're doing in, uh, you know, in intro grad studies. But but I think I'm going to ask you for everybody to talk about contemporary comedy. Uh, The reversal, the reversal. I picked up the wrong syllabus. Um, Yeah, this this class is um, it's one I've taught three years in a row now. I like it a lot, but there's a little bit of, you know, the sort of backstory behind it, I think, is telling when I you know, my first few years at WashU, we have small classes in general, and I came in with this sort of repertoire of sort of avant-garde and theory-heavy classes. I had a class on avant-garde European directors and a class on theories of performance space, and I would teach them, but I would sometimes get very few students in them. And I just, all at once, I just got so tired of having small classes, and I had had this class kicking around in the back of my head for a while and so it is a 200 level class that is basically a history of American comedy from the vaudeville era to 2015 it packs in the non-majors I get a lot of students from you know the business school and from a variety of different majors we meet three times a week for an hour there's often a little bit of video we show and it's you know a topic that I love and and know a lot about just as a kind of you know fan of comedy, but it has a couple of distinctive features. One is that I get to teach them introductory units on a lot of performance studies and performance theory. I had taught an introduction to performance studies class, and I ended up importing a fair amount of material. So we, you know, they learn about Michael Kirby's vocabulary of matrix and non-matrix performance. We learn about Victor Turner and social drama. We have a unit on gender performativity. Um, We teach you know, Freud's theory of humor. So while it seems like it's a class that's, you know, a fun class and attractive for that reason, there's good stuff that I get to do with them that I think is helpful. But the sort of defining feature of the class is that the final assignment is optional. You can write an eight page paper or you can do two and a half minutes of original material in a showcase night that um, we produce and almost all the students perform stand-up. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, That's great. And some of it ends up being really good. And I, it does that sort of, you know, old-fashioned theater professor uh, thing where they get up and they perform and try to, you know, communicate live in space. And so it's been a blast. And I, I have to say, like, I still teach my other classes and um, it's just nice to have a big room full of students. So Harvey, uh, what are you teaching this semester or this quarter? Pardon me. I'm only teaching one class this 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 quarter, uh, and it's and it starts next week. Um, so I'm not in the middle of it, and I'm still actually in the process of finishing my syllabus. So, uh, but I'm teaching contemporary American theater. It's a small uh, seminar, about twelve to fifteen students. We sit in a circle, and we talk about plays that sort of were produced or emerged in the last five to ten years. You know, so that's how that's structured. And my thinking. For that class when I first created a version of it because the the lineup changes every year uh, was that I felt like students were becoming theater majors and the first thing that their friends and family would ask them would be like hey who's the like you know hot up-and-coming uh, artist and then what I noticed uh, uh, in the past was that students would would realize that they had never actually studied theater uh, within the last 15 years 
And it was it was as if nothing happened after August Wilson, nothing happened after Mamet, <laughs> happened after a number of people. Uh, so this is a class to actually equip uh, students with uh, knowledge about artists who are, you know, working right now, emerging in this moment. Uh, sort of many artists whose plays haven't been published yet, like like uh, Lauren Yee's work and stuff like that. So uh, that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna read drafts of plays that have been produced, um, production scripts basically, or early drafts. Uh, we'll go to the Goodman New Stages Festival, uh, and then we'll gauge some uh, playwrights and conversation. So you know, Ayat Akhtar will be here in the fall, so then they'll have a chance to read Disgraced and then talk to him about that and then his new play. Um, so that's that class. Sounds like a lot of fun. I would like to take that's that great. class. It's great. I, I, I used to teach this large intro class with all 105 incoming theater majors and uh, by not teaching it this fall it opens up the ability for me to teach this small seminar so I'm excited about that. Why don't we wrap it up guys but before we say goodbye let's each share one of our drafts. Drafts of course is the segment where we talk about things we're working on, things we're thinking about um, maybe things we haven't really thought through yet Uh, but uh, Sarah why don't you start us off? So I'm looking forward to uh, next week, uh, September 22nd through the 24th, when I'll be doing one of the keynote talks at uh, Bard College as part of a conference of spectatorship in an age of surveillance. So I'm there with Elisa Morrison and um, James Harding, um, among a lot of other great people who are all speakers and presenters as part of that. This is a second part um, follow-up to a work on digital dramaturgies and questions of media and performance that Miriam Felton-Dansky and Jacob Gallagher-Ross have been working on for a couple of years. And so I'm, I'm, what I'm talking about there is relatively recent piece from 2014 called Wanna Play, Love in the Time of Grinder" by Dries Verhoeven, the Dutch performer, performance artist who's done media-related works mostly in, in the Netherlands and uh, and but also in Germany and uh, Belgium, uh, and talking about this idea of, of queer identity and, and queer surveillance and how that um, shapes different kinds of publics in public and private space between you know, online social media and you know sort of private, seemingly private space or public performance. You know, in other words, exactly what Lawrence Senelik is calling for in his uh, in his <laughs> essay in the Theater Survey. <laughs> Listen, it's a big tent. It's we're all in the field together. I'm just, I'm just, I'm um, sorry. I'm just, I'm just an alluring port of call. Sorry, I'm just, I'll just hang out. <laughs> Will we escape oh, the seductive day? I'm having a t-shirt oh. made for for Aster. Like, just I am Sarah Bijang. I'm an alluring port of call. Yes. Right, siren. <laughs> um, uh, Harvey, what's on your mind? Oh, I'm, I'm so excited about this. Like. We should, we should have a limited edition on tap series merchandise uh, merchandise series oh, where it's like, oh I have ideas yeah don't worry <laughs> with one of them being the alluring port of call like t-shirt <laughs> that's our tagline and, and beer <laughs> yes pint glass uh, yeah so uh, what I'm thinking about right now is that what am I thinking about I next month no in November I have to go to the National Communication Association to give a talk and the topic on of that talk is going to be on impolitic speech in the presidency and I am thinking about this presentation that I will give on what does it mean when one can't trust the politicians, you know, at their, take, take a politician at their word, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because we know when we think about performativity, um, you know, sort of the 
the value and the meaning uh, and the significance of authorized speech acts, right? You know, but what happens when the credibility of those speech acts are undermined by inconsistency in prose, right? So that's what I'm thinking about right now. That's really exciting. Um, both of you have managed to um, share these prestigious upcoming talks you're giving. My draft is about fantasy academic department. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. it, is, it is NFL season, and my fantasy football league is already off to a terrible start. But this has reminded me of a fabulous idea that I've had and, and talked about with other uh, colleagues in the past, which is to basically apply fantasy sports to academia. And this is something I actually think that the three of us should do, and we should do it. We should have a draft off the air and then have a segment where we talk about the, the departments that we've drafted. In brief, the way this works is in the same way that you would draft a fantasy baseball team or football team, you have slots, right, that you need to fill and you can pick people from anywhere in the field to fill them. So, you know, maybe a typical fantasy academic department would have one emerita, one full professor, uh, one named chair, two associate, two assistant, um, a postdoc, a graduate student, maybe other positions you take turns just picking names that you use to fill those slots right and you develop your own fantasy academic department which you can then evaluate in a variety of ways you could assign points to these departments on the basis of publications books and chapters and articles and edited volumes um, awards classes taught plays directed uh, invited talks, things like this. But you would also, unlike a fantasy sports team, you would also need to think about coverage, right? Does your fantasy department have people that look at different historical eras? Do you have someone who can direct? Do you have someone who can teach acting? <laughs> um, and then, so what I'm saying is that in the future, we, we will need to draft fantasy academic departments and then compare them on the air. I, I think it would be, we just, yes, I'm, I'm in. <laughs> um, I definitely think we have to figure out like what are the stats. Yes. And then yes. we have to come up with some mechanism because unlike fantasy professional sports leagues, yes. uh, we could make sure that our team did better. Right? Like if we, you know, accepted oh. publications for certain people who are on our well, fantasy team. If you right, guys all edit of a sudden series, like yeah, you know, yeah, you know, yeah. it's like, wow, there's a lot of publications of right, I mean, you know, we're just, yeah. you know, we, we actually can affect, like, the play on the field a little bit more than the typical fantasy uh, yeah. all this, all of a player this, does. You know, all of a sudden this postdoc Sarah drafted is giving plenary speeches. <laughs> like, well, it, it, I mean, it's like, you know, I mean, it's, it, perhaps that assumes a little more power than, than actually is here. But if you start <laughs> noticing, like, a, a strange conglomeration of people all getting invited to at Bowdoin College, you will right. know... <laughs> Right there, just on my fantasy team, <laughs> and I'm just trying to boost my stats. I love this. I love this. I love it. All right, let's do it. Um, uh, Sarah Harvey, it's been a pleasure as always, and um, uh, listeners, thanks for listening to another episode, and we you will hear from us soon. On Tap is produced with the support of the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and the Master's Program in Theater and Performance Studies. Mary Ellen Vander Hayden produces the program. You can find us on the web at www.ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for On Tap, and on Twitter, at On Tap Podcast. <laughs>